0: Leeds, 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 what is happening? Welcome to Working Hours, a show about a place called Leeds, a time called now, and an activity called work. I want to speak to 1,000 loiners over the course of what I vaingloriously believe is the most important decade in the history of the human species, and I want to ask those loiners about what they do all day, and hear how they feel about it all. My name is Simon, and this is all my fault. What did you want to be when you grew
1: up?
2: Ah well, um, I wanted to be an actor. Um, well, I kind of switched. Sometimes I wanted to be an actor. Sometimes I wanted to be a costume designer. Mm. So yeah, it kind of I fluctuated a bit. Mm. Um, but I've actually ended up doing a little bit of both. So all right,
0: cool.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um. So was that the main thing? You didn't. You would. You. You were always sort of actor and costume designer.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think I had a real um, benefit because my mum was an artist and a lot of the artists that um, I encountered during my training at university and professionally had a bit of a battle on their hands trying to convince their parents that artist was a legitimate job Mm. or a legitimate career path. But I didn't have any of that resistance. So I think... Um, it always felt like being an artist was something that was on the table, that was allowed. And mm. um, but yeah, I, I definitely. My mom was a visual artist. She was a painter, and she uh, and, and did drawing and ceramics and textiles, and she wrote children's books and illustrated them. Mm-hmm. And and so I think she was a bit surprised that I went down like a performance route, a mm. of showing off route. Mm. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was it was definitely always in that direction, I guess.
0: So where do you think that came from? Do you think that was just from, you know, sort of TV and film? You were like, I want to do that. Or was there a theatre influence? Or... Uh,
2: yeah, well, I was really fortunate and I was exposed to a lot of different art when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what I liked about live performance is that you're sharing space and time with the audience. Mm-hmm. So there's something about the live encounter. As I mean, in my ideal world, theatre would feel more like a football match, you know, like when fans turn out to a football match, they feel like their presence shifts the energy in the room and they recognise how important they are as part of that interaction. And I think that sometimes people don't think in the same way about theatre, but mm. I do and I feel it's it's really similar.
0: Yeah, you're a big mm. fan of Brecht then?
2: Well, yeah, <laughs> it's all right. I mean, I do think that, um, you know, Political theatre is uh, probably quite needed right now.
0: Mm. And I I think it's a, you know, it's a space where you can be political without being piled on because, you know, people don't think of theatre or of theatre as being sort of too radical. So I think you could be way more radical in theatre and probably people are. There's probably quite a lot of really crazy stuff going on on the stage at the moment, but you don't necessarily see it or hear it.
2: Yeah, Leeds is really great for, so I'd say, like radical contemporary performance that asks questions, but with humour and with playfulness. Mm. Um, I think it's a really special city to work in, really.
0: Yeah, I've been amazed with how much, how many artists, theatre companies, um, and like community organisations, and just how much of everything there is. Um, yeah, it's it's really surprised me. You're listening to Series 3, Episode 20, and to my guest, Ellie Harrison. This is another Zoom interview recorded on the 1st of August 2022. Ellie Harrison is a performance maker and artist living in Leeds and working internationally. She is artistic director of The Grief Series, a sequence of seven arts projects that open up spaces to talk about bereavement and end of life. The grief series is multi-sensory with the audiences being engaged as participants and co-creators. Informed by rigorous research with academics, clinicians and the public, the series aims to create safe spaces where notions of grief and bereavement can be discussed and expressed openly through a range of empowering creative practice. Ellie creates a range of solo and collaborative devised performance work for studios, galleries, found and public spaces, participation is at the heart of all her work as a performer, facilitator and mentor. Ellie specialises in embedding care and ethical participation, both in her own practice, and offering consultancy to other artists and organisations. Her work is often characterised by a playful and provocative approach to difficult topics, encouraging audiences to make decisions and participate. Ellie lectures on her practice, writing articles, giving talks, performances and workshops at universities internationally, including the University of Arts London, the Sorbonne Paris, and UAM Mexico City. You can find out more about the grief series at griefseries.co.uk. Now please enjoy this episode of Working Hours with Ellie Harrison. Anyway, so we will crack on to the next thing. So what th- that you are doing now then?
2: So now I am the artistic director of a company that is set up called The Grief Series, which creates spaces for people to talk about loss and bereavement. And sometimes that's with sadness, tears, sometimes that's with humour, sometimes we're in fits of giggles and often with uh, a drink and quite a lot of like cake, food, (laughs) food and (laughs) booze are kind of recurring themes in my work. So. (laughs) <laughs> um, and as I said, I come from a performance background, but I collaborate with artists from different disciplines and also people outside the arts. So previous collaborators on the grief series have included chefs, historians, mm. palliative care professors, fairground sign writers, death doulas, five-year-olds, 85-year-olds, and um, all sorts of different people. Mm. And um, so, yeah, I create spaces where all sorts of different people come together to make projects about loss and, and sometimes it's funny, mm. often it's funny. Mm.
0: So is that, is that now full-time for you? Is that full-time?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And- Very much so <laughs> slightly more full-time than is probably viable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, previously I've lectured in performance, so I've been sort of Uber driver of university lecturers. So Mm. (laughs) uh, I kind of go in for a module or two modules, and I go in and do talks around the country at universities. Mm. So London, Manchester, you know, all around Leeds. Mm. And sometimes it's, it's glam and I get to go to places like Paris and Mexico and Romania and with my work. So that's been a real joy and a real treat to be invited to all of these different countries. Mm. Talk about something which, I guess on the face of it could look like it's a depressing subject, mm. but actually when you dig a little bit deeper, you're generally talking to people about people they love mm. and about things that are important to them. And that is joyful, and mm. um, even when it's a lot to hold, I guess.
0: Mm. Mm. So... um how did it come about? How did you get into it? Like what, what happened? Did you all of a sudden, like, I, I mean, was it a coalescence? Like what, what happened?
1: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, um,
2: I started out making, making all different kinds of performance. I made a solo show that toured around the country and then I made some outdoor performances for unusual spaces. So we did a project called Yorkshire Land Boating Club where we pushed a boat on wheels 105 miles around Yorkshire and asked people what was important to them. Um, And then for my next show, I decided to make a show about grief because I'd lost uh, quite a few people in my late teens and early twenties, and it had a big impact on me. Mm. And I was, to be honest, I was really angry about uh, the fact that we're not great at talking about death. So Mm. I thought I'm going to change that. Um, And so I made a show and the show's quite, stand up almost. It's quite light, quite playful. Um, but what started happening was people started coming up to me after the show and saying, oh, that really reminded me of when I lost my partner, or let me tell you about my dad's funeral, or this reminds me of when I lost my child. And so I accidentally become a bit of a grief magnet. Mm-hmm. And people were being really generous donating their stories. And I thought, well, these conversations wouldn't be happening without the art as a prompt. Mm. So the art kind of acts as an emotional accessibility ramp into this kind of difficult subject. Mm. But people clearly want a space to talk. And so I thought, oh, maybe I'll do a trilogy. Like a lot of cool kids were doing trilogies. And then I found a seven-stage grief model. I looked at a four-stage one, a five-stage one, and a seven-stage one. And because I was young and stupid and bold, I went, I'm going to do seven projects about grief. And for each one, I'll collaborate with a different artist working in a different discipline. And I thought it would probably take me about seven years, but that was back in 2010. And we're now in 2022 and and the series will be completed in 2023. So it's actually turned into this epic 13-year body of work. And I guess part of the reason that it's taken so much longer than I thought it would is because communities have really picked it up and run with it and made it their own. And as well as the seven projects, we've gone and done projects in primary schools, or we've done work with queer churches, or we've been invited to conferences to speak in, you know, uh, in international conferences, or we've taken, I mean, the solo show that started it off uh, toured for nine years well, so yeah. whilst I was making part two part three part four part five I was still touring around this show at the same time so um, it's acquired a momentum that I hadn't planned for but I'm very grateful for
0: I suppose. Mm. So you say it started with a piece of work so I take it you know you were driven by your own grief to kind of sit down and write but i I would imagine at that point, you didn't have the whole of this sort of thing scoped out. So a lot of that's going to be quite a raw kind of emotional process. Um, mm. Again, that first piece of work out there. Um, what am I trying to ask It Where where do I want to go with this? Um, I, I want to uh, look at how. In terms of that developing, when it became something that became a company, like, was it something that just ran away from you and you followed it straight away or was there like, how much control did you have over it? Was it something that was always guiding you or were you? So
2: I guess it started off as like a happy accident. Mm. Like the show went well. People invited me to perform it all over the shop. Mm. People coming up to me after every single show and talking to me. Mm. And I thought there needs to be more work. And then that's when I had the good sense, I guess, to listen to what people were telling me. And I decided to start the grief series. And from the outset, it was seven projects. So, you know, there was a strategy there. There was a sense of, I'm going to do these seven projects. They're all going to be in slightly different art forms. You know, they're not all going to be theatre. They're going to recognise that to reach different people, you have to work in different forms. You know, you have to put work in unusual spaces. So. Although um, we don't really that often work in theatres or galleries, we still do occasionally. Mm. We're mainly taking art to people where they are, you know? So, for example, we built a fun fair about anger called The Unfair that turned up in town squares and parks, you know? Mm. So someone's just on a dog walk to Kirkstall Abbey and they end up having really engaged conversation about anger and whether it's a positive thing or whether it's always negative,
1: Mm.
2: you know? So... Yeah, there, it started off as accident and became strategy, I guess. Mm. And 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 yes, I think at first it felt quite, um, in some ways, felt quite raw. Although I guess I'm a compulsive oversharer, so you know, there was never any awkwardness for me about going, "Oh yeah, my mom died, and my brother died, and my dad died." You know, I was kind of used to that, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, if,
0: I mean. Talking about it, as you said, you know, and I think it's something the English especially seem to kind of have difficulty with. And like, you know, it they, they, they sort of wants to be pushed off to the side of like, well, we don't talk about it because it's too upsetting. But it's like, well, everyone deals with it. It's, mm. okay. And if you don't talk about it, if you don't have the language to talk about it, then it's just so much harder to deal with.
2: Yeah, I think, well, I think we don't. We have a lot of rehearsal time with other kind of rituals or big life transitions. Mm. You know, people talk about weddings all the time before they're planning their own. Mm. You know, kids get taught about weddings and they talk about them and they attend them. And um, but with death, it's somehow different. We don't have a lot of space to rehearse talking about it, mm. and we don't have spaces where we can fail, where we can safely fail, where we can say something and go, "Oh, that was probably the wrong thing to say." And um, before it's the critical moment, and so, of course, if you don't have space to fail, the pressure ramps up, and then people are terrified of saying the wrong thing and and sometimes I don't know. I kind of feel like sometimes saying, "I have no idea what to say is one of the best things to say
0: yeah uh, and and the reactions as well you know it it's that sort of in a process of grief, it can be quite often, you know, like within a group or within a a family, there are sort of kind of snap decisions that people make of like, oh, this is how people should be behaving. But it's that like you, it's like they forget that grief does funny things to you. You know, you could react in any number of ways. Like you don't, we have these expectations of, of, I'm sure we've all had experiences of, you know, you get told of someone's death and then you're like, I didn't react in the way I expected to react. I thought I would, you know, you either did cry or didn't cry and you thought you would or you wouldn't. And you kind of like, "Mm, um, I thought this would hit me in a different way. So, yeah, you never know what to expect with it either.
2: Yeah, it's very twisty and turny. Like, And the more you can find a flow with it and try and um, resist the temptation to wrestle it into some kind of box or wrestle it into some kind of order, I think better. I mean, that's advice to myself because I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did precisely the opposite and it kind of bit me in the ass. So I guess, mm-hmm. yeah, there's, I think it's important that we create spaces where it's all allowed. Mm-hmm. And, and I think in the grief series, we've often used an element of humour as a way of freeing up people, giving them permission to be flexible and express their grief in whatever way feels authentic for them on that day. Whether that's laughter, tears, confusion, mm. doing angry karaoke with a punch bag or, um, <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs>
0: is the tour regular, irregular? Like how does your week sort of break down? Are you mainly working in the house? Are you jumping in the car? Are you traveling around every day? Like what's what's your
1: day uh,
2: It look? is completely different every day and every week, which is beautiful. So sometimes we're in fundraising mode. And we're doing lots of planning and we're writing funding applications, which is my least favorite thing. Uh, And we're wrangling budgets and Excel spreadsheets and having planning meetings and getting all the artists in place and all the participants in place. And then we'll be in project delivery mode where we're making the projects. And then we'll be in project sharing mode where we share. Yeah, we're out on the road sharing projects. Um, And that can be all over the country historically and abroad, but I guess over the last few years, we've really put our focus on Leeds because I felt at the beginning of the grief series, I was working far more outside of Leeds and Leeds was just where I slept. Um, So we've really tried to focus on, yeah, being a bit more engaged with the city um, in the last couple of years. Well, no, probably the last four years, I'd say. So 20, since 2018. And so we work, we work all over the shop. Sometimes we work from my house, which is kind of Team Grief HQ. uh, And sometimes as a team, we're working out of the office at Centre for Live Art Yorkshire, Clay on Regent Street. And we might be working in a particular space like the Leeds Playhouse or, on a on a site Um so when we were renovate we made a, a little museum in a caravan and so yeah obviously we couldn't get the caravan into a building so that mm. required quite a lot of outdoor working and touring it around uh, required a sturdy set of boots and a good raincoat so
0: <laughs> yeah so in terms of the team then how many is there of you i, I mean I suppose you've got other kind of partners and so on that you're working with because you've got, you're doing all these collaborations. I mean, do do they, do have like a board or a group of people that you work with mainly and then the other collaborators come in or is it all the collaborators working together and
1: that's...
2: Yeah, so we have, um, so I'm the artistic director and then I'm joined by um, a great producer called Rosie Clark and a company manager and access assistant because I'm a disabled artist. Um, And then we have... Sort of core collaborators that work with us on most projects, so work with a really incredible designer called Bethany wells and um, and a really amazing interdisciplinary artist called Matt Rogers who does film, photography, live performance, pastoral, care, um all of those sorts of things. and um, and then we have collaborators that might visit us or be with us just for that one project, so and um, yeah, it's a it's a real mix. and um, and sometimes we have small teams. So on a particular project, we recently did a film project with palliative care academics from Marie Curie, and that was just mainly me and Matt working on that project. And whereas when we made the caravan, there were sixteen, a team of sixteen artists mm. and about twelve partners working on it. So yeah, it was. It really the scale is the ver- the variety of scale is a wildness. Mm. Um, and i also mentor other people on their projects about grief so i'll go in and consult people on the ethics of participation
1: mm.
2: how to make compassionate spaces to talk about difficult things um, yeah so I'll, I'll go and work on other people's projects as well mm. being yeah. a kind of um art man <laughs> Some, someone um Someone called me the Mary Berry of grief a while ago. And I was like, that's (laughs) hilarious. I'll have that. I'll take that.
0: (laughs) In terms of access and being disabled yourself, like how, was that something that was always built in and considered as part of your design um, and therefore part of like how you got funded and sought funding, like what, how did that play in?
2: Yeah. uh, So I was in massive denial. So I, I've had chronic fatigue since I was 11 years old,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and yeah, it wasn't until 2018 that I started going, oh, actually this is kind of a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, it got to a point where the work had become so successful that I couldn't keep up
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I couldn't, um, I couldn't manage it and I needed more help because I just don't have as many hours in the day as other people. I don't have as much energy um, and I have to find places to lie down. So, so sometimes... I literally that, lie down. Literally lie down. So that's sometimes causes a funny looks. So I was at um, a hospice conference and I was just about to go on a panel and I was exhausted. So I just went for a lie down underneath the table and several people thought I was a medical emergency. So we've made a sign now that says I'm not a medical emergency. I'm just just having a nap. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so we've, we've been... I think there was a lot of internalized ableism that I was carrying around with me, but we're getting better. We I have an access assistant now. Mm. We're getting better at um, building rest time into my day, my work day. So I normally have a sleep after lunch and then maybe work a bit later, but that's kind of normal for theatre people or art artists. The working days and so um rigid. Mm. So yeah, kind of we've we've made it work and. Um, Yeah, I think it takes quite a lot for partners that we work with to get their head around, Mm. Um, but we build it into all our fundraising now and it's, it's, yeah, it's not a problem.
0: Is it has something that you have to kind of announce with every new collaborator kind of like, oh, well, I have this and this might happen and and this might go on and.
2: Yeah. And I think, I think I probably do have to talk about it more because it's an invisible illness. Mm. So, um, yeah, because. Because it it will, if I it might be fine for me to walk up three flights of stairs, mm-hmm. if I have to do it four times in one day, it's going to become an issue. So it's it's really um, something that impacts the quantity that I'm amount, uh, uh, able to do one in any one day,
1: mm-hmm. but
2: also how quickly I can turn tasks around. And I think you know we live in a society that has a sense of hurry sickness, you know. Mm. We're, f- we're full on capitalism productivity. Mm. Mm. And so trying to encourage people to slow down is mm. always the hardest thing.
1: Mm.
2: You know, okay, yes, I can do that, but I can't do it for the end of the day. It'll have to be this time mm. tomorrow.
0: What's the rush? What's the rush? You know? Um, yeah, I mean, my whole thesis is everyone should be working less. Yeah. <laughs> do less.
2: Do less. I think. I think for a long time I was thinking do less better.
1: Mm.
2: Um, but then I wasn't really living by that. I was doing things in incredible amount of detail with the kind of perfectionist streak,
1: mm.
2: and but doing just the same as someone that was able bodied. Mm. Um, but we've just dropped me down to four days a week, which is half working. I tend to cheat a little bit when I'm supposed to be resting. I might do the odd bit of research or emails, but it's definitely a step in the right direction.
1: Mm.
2: And because from 2010 to 2018, I was teaching Saturdays and Sundays, extracurricular youth theatre, and then doing grief Monday to Friday. And and yeah, that's, it was probably not super sustainable as a work practice. It turns out I wasn't a very nice boss to myself.
0: Yeah, well, this is, um, you know, and then there's a knock-on effect of that you're, you know, you're going to be, short-tempered or tetchy or like not paying attention or you know missing the finer details and then that sort of cascades into kind of other bad working and bad working practices Mm -hmm. so there's nothing wrong with doing less if you if you can (laughs) that's the challenge
2: oh that is the challenge that is the challenge and trying to slow down in a world that doesn't encourage it
0: Mm -hmm. I mean yeah I absolutely sympathize with all of that it's I, I was, I've gone from a situation of being really time rich, um, and everything else poor, but time rich. And that was, that was great. Um, but you know, now, now I have no time, the time is gone. <laughs> it's evaporated. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's quite annoying. Um, yeah. so I'm thinking of moving on to like the COVID question, cause I think that'll be kind of interesting. Um, but I think as well, I I don't always bring in the kind of work-life balance, wellness kind of thing. I've I've done it at various points, but it's not been like a sustained question. So I suppose I want you to kind of think with that in mind, which I think you would be anyway, because that's kind of the area that you're working in a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So if you can kind of think back to going into lockdown, like at what point you locked down, whether it was earlier than other people or whether it was the same time, like how that Impacted you? How prepared you were for it? Was it a sudden change? Was it something that you we're like, right? I know how to deal with this. Like, take us through your your experience and how that's changed your work and working.
2: Yeah. Well, historically, and um, obviously, freelancers, if you're self-employed, you don't. And um, if you're off sick, you don't get paid. Mm. So I have been historically very bad at taking any time off whatsoever. Mm. To the point where once I was in a car accident and I still turned up the next day to teach kids. Reflect. <laughs> bruising down this side of my face. But the, the beginning. of them or traumatize them? <laughs> a, a little bit of both, I like to think. <laughs> uh, I did playfully tell one group that I'd been in a fight and you should see the other person. Um, and I think they <laughs> believed me for about a split second and then went, hang on, this doesn't smell right. Um, but <laughs> at the beginning of lockdown, I was teaching at a university part time and I had a cough. And they were like, oh, you know what? Don't come in. Mm. And it was the first paid sick day I've ever had in my professional oh, life. What
0: was that like? Oh,
2: terrifying and glorious. Same time. I felt so guilty um, and <laughs> started planning, um, a workshop plan that they could deliver themselves, these poor first years. Um, and then. So I I locked down a little bit earlier than everybody else because mm-hmm. of this cough, which was just a cough. It wasn't COVID, but it was a pretty scary time for the arts and freelancers in general. And obviously I employ lots of freelancers. So mm. suddenly all of our income was swept away, mm. but all of our outgoing office storage, things like that remained the same. Mm. So uh, I guess we... Whilst a lot of people were on furlough or were staying at home, getting creative and making art, all the artists were freaking out and writing funding bids like crazy. So Mm. it was a really, really busy time. I mean, I think one advantage is we were used to working from home. I was used to working from home. So I was used to people seeing my house on Zoom calls or Skype calls and suddenly all the people in the council. We're like, Oh no, I'm going to hide my laundry. Um, And all, I think there were a couple of us had a moment of feeling kind of smug. Only a moment before we got back to our funding. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a pretty wild time. And I think coupled with the fact that the subject area that I work in, there was a time where a lot of the charities and the bereavement phone support lines went down whilst they were switching to at home working. And what started happening was people started just ringing me up, going, I don't think I'm allowed to go to my mom's funeral. What am I going to do? Or what are the funeral restrictions in Stockport? And I was like, I don't know, but I'm going to find out,
1: Mm.
2: you know, 7am, 5am, you know, these panicked phone calls late at night, early in the morning, Mm. and just in a kind of grassroots activist way, people were grieving and they didn't know what to do and they wanted someone that they knew had lived experience of grief to speak to on the other end of the phone. Mm. So I ended up fielding quite a lot of them. Um, yeah, uh, d- fielding a lot of phone calls and trying to make 10 phone calls so the grieving person only had to make one, you know? Um, doing a lot of signposting, working out where to find up-to-date information about funeral restrictions. But um, yeah, it was it was certainly, it was certainly became, acu- I became acutely aware of the fact that my practice sits right where life and art meet. Mm. You know, I think sometimes people think that art is fluffy or a luxury. And actually the fact that people were picking up the phone to me kind of told me that it it wasn't a luxury. Mm. People needed that empathic space mm. um, and they needed that at grassroots on the ground advice. So... Yeah, a lot of the pandemic was characterised by trying to make myself useful, really. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I heard someone describe art as, um, you know, a way of saying what what you can't say. Um, Yeah. And when you were, you know, talking about the theatre pieces before, I mean, I I was thinking as you were talking then, I mean, you have you have there a tool that can compress time. You know, like if you think of of a process of grief, you know, you you're doing other stuff through the day, you know, you're working and then the moments come to you. But if you compress that time, it it you can turn it into a cohesive narrative. You can turn it into things that are recognizable stages and that are processes. But as you experience it, it's like, oh, you know, I'm not thinking about the grief or the grief is with me or it's there all you know like it turns itself up to really loud and then it'll quiet yeah. down or that it'll be a background buzz so mm. that yeah yeah
2: yeah i mean i definitely uh, yeah completely i think there's something a beautiful thing called the dual process model that kind of describes that process of actively getting on with your life working doing those sorts of things and then processing your feelings and you sort of switch between you oscillate between the two different workloads and mm. um, the workload of rebuilding your life and the workload of feeling your feelings and trying to process that and integrate the two and mm. um, I mean I've always been quite skeptical of the grief the seven stage grief models from a the therapeutic perspective in that I think it's very possible for people to take it too literally and then grieving becomes like assembling an IKEA wardrobe, you know, I complete stages one to seven and I have completed my grief. <laughs> Whereas actually I see it as a palette of permission mm. to feel things that you might be feeling. So and um, on the Grief Series website, all the projects are uh, presented in a circle because I think it's, you know, one day there'll be a lot of anger and a little bit of sadness. And then another day there might be a little bit of hope in there. And then the next day that hope's gone and it's a different thing. So and um, it's certainly not linear. Mm. And in fact, a really brilliant artist that I'm working with at the moment, Chloe Smith, talks about grief as being tidal.
1: Mm.
2: And you know, mm. we don't try and um, we don't get annoyed at the sea because the tides come in,
1: mm.
2: or it's so, rough one day and it's calm <laughs> another day, and we just go, "Oh, that's the sea." And yeah, that's what yeah, it is, and
0: it's doing its thing.
2: Yeah. Maybe be that way about grief, it would be. We would be gentler with ourselves, maybe.
0: Yeah, well, it's 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 that all being in tune, you know, being more in tune with natural rhythms, you know, natural processes, natural flows, you know, periods of darkness, periods of stillness, periods of activity, periods of rest, you know. But the 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 machine wants you to just dun 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 constant rate, like
1: yeah,
0: nonstop all the time, and that's just not how. Um, you know creatures are
2: <laughs> yeah we're not designed that way <laughs> <No>.
0: <laughs> in terms of your ownership over this project like how much do you feel you own it and how much do you feel it owns you at this point I mean because it sounds like then you must have just been like this is just the thing that's happening now that I must do you know like it's not something that you're driving necessarily it's something that's being driven from outside
2: no, yeah, I def- it will. I mean, the pandemic definitely happened at people,
1: mm.
2: um, and yeah, the the phone calls and the requests for help, I suppose, were just happening. Um, but I also felt uniquely equipped mm. to deal with it in a way that I think lots of people weren't, and I think you know the fact is something very traumatic was happening. And if you're used to having a persona that is very professional where you can't bring your whole self to work, then that trauma becomes a real problem.
1: Mm.
2: Whereas as a team, we're used to trauma being in the room Mm. and something that can be looked at in the face. So we always do check-ins and check-outs part of our work day. So we check in in the morning, we might use the Questions: What are you feeling? What's distracting you? And um, at the beginning of the day, and then we'll check out at the end of the day and see how we feel. So, uh, I try to create workspaces where people feel they can bring their whole selves, not just the the polished, perfect version of themselves. Because mm. I think actually, the more we can embrace difficulty, failure, complexity. The more robust will be, and I think I noticed that you know a lot of the smaller companies, like grief series, were a lot more able to be a lot more resilient than the big organizations.
0: In what Um, way? What do you mean by by that? Um.
2: Well, we're used to as a smaller company, we're used to not knowing things, Mm. and we're used to being able to say, "I don't know what's going to happen."
0: Yeah, just having to kind of react and, and be constantly, well, you're more agile, aren't you?
2: We're more agile, but we're also more transparent about um, our feelings and we are a- more able to boldly not know yeah. and not see that as a weakness, to, to see that as a
1: strength. and mm. um, mm.
2: Say that we things will happen and we will need to react and mm. um, some of it will do great. And some of it, we probably won't, we'll mess it up, but that's okay. Mm. Um, I think we're artists are very good at making friends with our own failures. And so (laughs) actually in a situation where you're constantly having to decision make incredibly quickly and you're constantly having to pivot, Mm. being okay with failure and not beating yourself up about it is pretty good place to start.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's like, um, it's like with a an artistic or creative sort of um endeavor or career you, you're kind of putting your failures out there unless you get to the point where you've you have kind of you know you've done it well enough and then you've got the brand and you're recognized but you kind of like as you're working and as you're developing your work like things that you think are naff or I was like oh I wouldn't do that that way I would do this completely different like it's out there and that's kind of your work and you have to kind of be all right with that to a degree I think you have to be kind of like that's part of what my evolution to to this point
2: yeah completely but I mean I also think we were really lucky in that we were in a project planning phase so we didn't have to cancel as much delivery as Mm. other other organizations or other artists Mm. So we were in planning fundraising mode and we could do that fairly easily remotely. So,
1: Mm.
2: And we had a load of um, tools and workshop things Mm. that we were able to, creative tasks to help people process grief that we were able to put out into the public realm and go, Mm. if you can't go to somebody's funeral that you want to, here's a list of creative tasks you might want to do instead Mm. as a way of honouring their memory. So we had things in the toolkit that were suddenly five times as valuable as they
1: had been before. Mm. Mm.
0: Let's move on to we'll do climate change first. Cause I was thinking, you know, I'm thinking about oh what what goes with what as as you're talking. Um but I mean like all the areas kind of kind of cross this. So um we'll we'll start off with climate change. So what can you do, do what are you doing um what does your project do about climate change mitigation adaption is it something that you can do anything towards or is it something that's you know like it's out of my remit i'm not touching that or like what's what's your approach and how is it affecting your work
2: well i think we're quite lucky in that a lot of the things that we do are organically uh Pretty good for the environment, you know. We're incredibly small. We don't run big buildings, big offices that use up loads of unnecessary power. Most of the work that I do um, is either out of secondhand or inherited objects. Mm. So we we do a lot of work with, um, yeah, secondhand antiques, things that we find, also things that I inherited from my family. So. Our personal objects are kind of yeah constantly in use, mm. um, and we're working with amazing Mexican paper sculptors, and they only work with recycled materials. So
0: mm. um, that's cool.
2: Yeah, we're we're pretty we're pretty lucky. We have them um, joined Sale, which is uh, an organization that helps companies uh, be more eco-friendly. Mm. But we're just on the start of that journey. I think we're. Feel like we're just coming out of um, pandemic firefighting mode mm. and beginning to think about how we can be even better and more sustainable. But actually, we've always done quite a bit of remote working. Mm. Yeah, I think I think we think carefully as part of the subject matter about the life cycle of objects, mm. and and as a company that is project funded. We are very good at doing a great deal with not very much resource. So there isn't, there isn't the chance to waste money on things that get used once. You know, if we're going to buy something, it has to do us for the next 10 years. And it has to be able to be curtains in an installation and then tablecloths for an event. And then, um, you know, various made into flags for a primary school project, you know? Yeah. All of our objects have to work quite hard.
0: (laughs) That's good. I mean, there's a couple of interesting things there. Well, I think it's interesting in terms of, you know, sort of inherited stuff and consumerism. Um, But as well, I mean, like, you must have come across the term climate grief. Yeah. And it must be something that, you know, is, that your work engages with to to various degrees so if you can talk about that a little bit
2: well i've actually just worked on a project about climate grief called uh distant futures and then they're working with different communities and vr to help people think about how we hold climate grief i guess how we create space for those feelings because and. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important that we express them and it's important that we find space to have those feelings because actually I think processing feelings helps us act Mm. ultimately. Mm -hmm. Um, But how do we create spaces for those feelings so they don't overwhelm us? Mm. You know, how might art be a good machine for hope? Mm. And how I should give us tools to create hope when we feel hopeless? um because hope is very much needed hoping of well, i think for me hope and action are really closely linked if you feel hopeless you don't act
1: mm.
0: so well and i suppose equally the flip side of that is if you can't act you feel helpless or hopeless yeah, yeah. um i mean if you put in a situation where you can't you literally can't do anything about it so like, well there's no hope then is
1: there
2: yeah <clears throat> yeah so how do we give communities tools for tapping into their hope mm. uh, and also how do we create spaces for people to feel the full force of their grief and know that it will that it's tidal that it will come and it will go
0: mm. okay um so in terms of um Kind of using an inherited uh materials. I don't know. I feel like there's a question there, but I can't I can't grasp it.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah,
0: is, is there anything that you want to sort of add on that? Well,
2: I suppose I so I'm a natural I mean archivist or hoarded, it depends <laughs> what your take is.
1: I like got, stuff.
2: I like stuff. I like stuff. And I I like the way that stuff mediates our relationship to the dead. And I inherited a lot of stuff. Um, And I think I have a a lot of respect for objects and beautifully made objects. And I think that's partly something that my mum instilled in me is to respect things that are beautifully made. Mm. Um, And it's about conserving what we have um, and looking after it and having less so and kind of obsessed with william morris and the arts and crafts movement in that and um, you know essentially he was anti fast fashion you know and he was also about putting bringing art and life close together so you know what if your curtains were your artwork mm. what if your chair was your artwork what if the spoon that you have breakfast with is is art and um, and i think that re-evaluating our attitude to objects and having fewer. I mean, it's kind of come back in fashion, hasn't it? It's Marie Kondo and the home edit. I guess mm. people are thinking about whether their objects spark joy, but um, but yeah, I do. Th- I do think it's it, it's important. I work out all my clothes at cost per wear, and mm-hmm. um, so as long as I wear it, you know. Yeah. It, I'd rather spend a little bit more and wear it lots than...
0: Yeah. Is it getting use? Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. Have
0: I just bought this? Have I just bought another DVD that I'm never going to unwrap and watch
2: because I've already seen it? Yeah. And, do, and actually, do I have the capacity? Something I'm thinking a lot about at the moment is, do I have the capacity to care for all of the objects that I own? Mm. Like, am I a good caretaker mm. of the things that I own? Or am I just accumulating more stuff that I'm going to treat badly?
0: Mm. Well, you know, I mean, because we have this concept of ownership of like, it's mine, I can do what I want to it, I can smash it, I don't need to take care of it or look after it for anyone else, I can just break it, because I bought it. And I think that's a large part of, you know, because then you are, you just need cheap stuff. And it's just that we'll replace it, throw it out, it's disposable, it's not. And, but even sort of, you know, manufactured goods, mass manufactured goods, there's beauty in some of those things there is design in those things and yeah people do fall in love with some of those items i know they're like, you know the ones that stop being made and then there's a few of them and then they become unique items and then they become valuable
1: items yeah
2: yeah yeah all i mean all of the 70s kitchenware that i was absolutely mortified about as a kid i was like oh this is so embarrassing <laughs> now i'm my kitchen <laughs> so is beautiful buried. now <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah gorgeous I'm, and retro yeah, exactly. So you just have to wait long enough, care, take things for long enough and they'll become beautiful again.
0: Oh yeah. I was going to talk about, um, sort of bringing it back to grief and to death, I suppose, um, you know, like other cultures, I'm thinking Saxon here, but you know, Egyptian and, and like various others of like and I know quite often it was for sort of higher born people, but being buried with items, I mean, that that was a thing that was quite, you know, quite a big thing. Um, I mean, is that something, I mean, cause we've, we've, we've made that connection. So I'm like, is there, is there anything else in there? What, I mean, is that something that's come up in your work before? Like how we connect to items and how? Items connect to, I suppose, our identity and then our death, and then, you know, yeah. identity and death. There's an interesting area, I suppose.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah, massively. I mean, people are buried with items now. It's, mm. it's something that happens in the UK. In fact, um, I had an audience member um, when I was performing in the Highlands of Scotland, and we had a really lovely chat, and he was talking about his wife's, his wife was terminally ill and in her final, you know, days. And and he came to see my show and he engaged very deeply and we had a very um, intense but beautiful conversation in the after-show talk. And then, and he sent me a letter saying that his wife had died mm. and I sent him some tea back and said, I'm not sending you food in case it goes off before it reaches you, but remember to eat. Mm. And, and then he sent me this huge box and I was like, what on earth is going on here? I was like, is it going to be Gwyneth Paltrow's head? It feels really heavy as a massive? Um, And I opened it up and it was a teapot that his wife had made in the 50s and she was apparently a relatively famous ceramicist. Mm. And he said, we're burying all of her ceramics with her except for this one teapot and I want you to have it. Wow! So it's definitely still something that is live for people now, Um, but you do have to, check because depending on whether you're getting buried or cremated there are certain rules about what you can and can't have in the coffin with you
0: Mm, yeah yeah for yeah for probably quite obvious reasons
2: yeah because funeral funeral workers don't want to end up using their own services Mm, yeah safety at work (laughs) yeah
0: yeah um Okay, so, yeah, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole of safety at work and and like <laughs> everything else uh, right now, because, yeah, we could do that, but I'm going to press on. Um, mm. so, yeah, I, I mean that as well, that imbues that item with you know so much symbolic value, you know, in sentiment and so on. But its mm. like a thing, a thing being so much more than a thing. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So where are we up to? We've done climate change. We and oh, we've not got very far, have we? So um, if we have a look at Brexit. Uh, so since we have Brexited, has that um, has that changed your work at all? And um, you know, if it has, has it made it worse, better? You know, or has it not made a difference?
2: Yeah, it's it has made a difference. Um, I mean, <laughs> made lots of differences. Part of what the first thing that springs to mind is that the cost of materials has gone up massively.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So when you're planning long-term projects, all of that planning has to get done twice, three times over,
1: mm-hmm.
2: which of course has its own impact on, I I'm being brutal, like productivity. And if you're the way that we work is that we, we you're put in a a bid, you'll put in an application for a project and then you'll wait three or four months and then you'll get it back and you'll either have got it or you won't. Mm. Um, but it becomes increasingly difficult to anticipate costs mm. because the price of things change. Mm. Buy wood has gone wild um, in terms of costs. So suddenly all the sets that we build become five times more expensive.
1: Mm.
2: I think there's also we have to think carefully about how we engage communities because it feels like people are a lot more divided. So in terms of the methodology we have for working with communities, we have to be aware that if those real points of division come up, how do we hold those compassionately without siding one way or the other? Mm. How do we hold spaces for people to come closer together Mm. and not just magnify or recreate that divide Mm. in a way that is toxic and damaging? And so there's kind of emotional impact in how we work with communities. And, you know, it has an impact on international work as well. That hasn't been the case for us at the moment. We've mainly been working with artists in Mexico. So they're not, they're never part of the EU. So
1: Mm.
2: we're lucky there. But really, I think the biggest thing is is the emotional impact of how do we talk with compassion when the media likes to stoke division?
0: Mm, Yeah. I want to look at social media through um, the amount of time it takes up in your work life, Uh, so sort of how much time and effort it takes you and whether you can see or whether the, you know, whether it's demonstrated to you by result in action, that it's worth that investment. Like, is it so obvious that it's just like, yeah, I, I wouldn't even have a business without social media or is it like, well, I do it and I have no idea what it's doing. And I, I think I get some phone calls from it. Like what's, what's your experience with it?
2: Yeah. Well, I'm really bad at it and <laughs> <So, laughs> um, partly because. There's times when it feels like it's an organic um, sharing from my practice. So if I'm doing something, you know, the good thing is art's quite often quite beautiful. So it's quite easy to share. It's not like other jobs where it might be more challenging to make your office look exciting or interesting. So when it feels like it's a sharing of my practice, then it's beautiful and it feels organic. But if I'm when it doesn't feel that way. I will pick being present with a participant over taking a good image, um, which is a choice and possibly a choice that impacts my business negatively, I guess. Hmm. Like I probably should be better at social media. Hmm. Yeah. Do you have anyone
0: doing it for you? Do you, do you have a social media person or anything like that as well? Oh, no,
2: the beauty is, the beauty of working in such a small organization is I'm the artistic director. I also write the funding bids. I also uh, wash the laundry for collaborators to stay at my house. I clean the toilets. I do the social media. It's very glamorous. Um But I do work with um, a photographer, well, with um, an artist called Matt Rogers. He takes beautiful photographs that we use um, from projects. And um, my producer, Rosie, is actually much better at social media than I am and has been doing bits that have been Considerably more effective than what I have been putting out into the world. Um, But I do think um, we've had to think very carefully because a lot of the time, the work that we do is confidential. Mm -hmm. And you can't say, oh, sorry, I know you were just in the middle of telling me about this really traumatic event in your life, but. Could you just stop? Because I just want to grab this tear before it falls.
1: Yeah. yeah. You
2: know, that's not ethically okay. Mm. So um, we've had to find lots of creative ways um, of working around it to protect participants' emotional safety. Mm. Uh, So we do a lot of flat lays, a lot of flat lays, and I love a color scheme, and each project in the grief series has its own color palette that I stick to quite um, rigidly. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is causing lots of really fun uh, debates with the artists that I'm working with in Mexico because their feeling about colour is more is more. <laughs> and I'm like, do you okay, want to okay. limit the amount of colours? It's insane. And, I know. I'm like, they're like, can we just have three more, Ellie? I'm like, okay, okay, just be <laughs> patient. It's it's hard for me.
0: <laughs> so, um, I mean, do you feel? Do you feel like you're stronger on anyone one than the other or do you feel that it works more naturally? I mean, like to me, it seems like it's more naturally Instagram than say Facebook or Twitter. Like what what then, is your, your feeling on well, the channels I, or the platforms?
2: It's because we work with such a wide variety of people, mm-hmm. different platforms work in different ways. So, you know, Twitter is great for all the academic work that I do and all the collaborations that I have with academics and researchers and historians and Mm. archives. Um, And Facebook is great for a lot of people that probably don't engage that much with, they might not be regular attenders for contemporary art, Mm -hmm. but they saw this thing one time, they saw this fun fair about anger or they saw this museum about grief one time Mm. and they really liked it and they want to keep track of what we're doing.
1: Mm.
2: You know, then Facebook is great for that and mm. um, so you have a different audience there of people that stumbled across the work and went oh yeah no actually my mates grouping," and I had no idea what to say to him but mm. we went to see your caravan and actually had a really cool chat after you know so and then instagram is is great for showing the visual content that we create mm. so it it's a it's a combination
0: mm. yeah so, so you're using it more as a um this is work that's suitable for this rather than adapting, you know, like this work needs to be on all of these platforms. It's like this work would suit this platform. And that's, is that how you kind of plan it?
2: Uh, Try and put
0: everything on everything still. We
2: try and put everything on everything, but I would say with, you know, with mixed results, but we also go where our collaborators are. Mm. So for the film that we made about um, an amazing research project, looking at how, bereavement changed during the pandemic Mm. a lot of that was on twitter because academics and palliative care professors are on twitter
0: Mm. i mean is it has it been a good way to sort of find collaborators has it um i mean is it good for bringing people in has it yeah
2: definitely the the solar project wouldn't have happened without twitter
1: yeah
2: um and it's also a really nice way of I guess, letting people in because to the work that we do, so for example, when we did this project Journey with Absent Friends, it, it was quite autobiographical and it dealt a lot with my personal history. And it was nice to be able to give people personal behind-the-scenes content on Instagram and go, this is me, like back where I grew up when I was a kid. You know, you could have an embarrassing picture of me as a child in a grubby track seat next to me now, you know, Um, yeah, yeah. so yeah, it worked, it worked well in that way. And and when we were in Mexico, when we've done our research visits to Mexico, Mm. it's a great way of sharing what we're seeing and transporting people to that space with us.
0: The other side of social media, you know, so I think anyone can kind of recognize the experience of, you know, you go on a platform. You're going to post something if you're on the actual platform itself and then all of a sudden you you know it's 10 minutes later and you don't know why the hell you were on there in the first place and um so the sort of getting lost or like the the other side of the scrolling side the social side the interacting with other people's posts um the you know building followers manually that kind of thing like is that something is that something that you only try a pay attention to potentially early on or is that something that's kind of active and ongoing like once you get to a point of building an audience has it felt that it's kind of grown organically or is it something you constantly have to you know put the work in and and do the manual labor on
2: I'd say it grows organically and it's particularly good for research actually Mm. you know when I there, there might be an artist and I'm really or research, and I'm really excited by the, their thought processes. I don't quite know how we might work together in future, but if I follow them, I can see, I can look for those points of crossover. And they go, "Yeah, oh. yeah." Actually, they've just done a call out. I'll respond to it, or, mm. um, oh, I've just seen this opportunity that w- which would be a great opportunity for us to collaborate together. So, mm. yeah, it happens. It happens organically, but I. Don't spend an awful lot of time. Mm. Time there.
0: Yeah, and I suppose as well, like you don't really, you don't really follow anyone unless you are expecting to have some kind of engagement with them. Like I know I've I've talked on here before about you know sort of people, all the stuff of yours that gets seen, but you don't know who's seen it because they haven't interacted with it. So they've seen yeah. it. Or they might have seen all of your stuff, but they've never interacted. So you've no idea. Yeah, um, But, you know, they're following you ultimately at some point so they can give you a like or something because mm. they, they're connecting to something else there, I suppose. Yeah. So, well, I suppose it, it links back to what you're saying of, you know, you, you're you waiting for those opportunities to kind of work together or to to have that interaction.
2: Yeah. And I also feel like it's become a bit of an informal archive of the co-authored nature of the work. So mm. um, we did a project, we did an offender. So in Mexico, people build offenders during Day of the Dead to commemorate people they've lost.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And we did a remote offender, um in 2020 and in 2021. That the general public could add to, mm-hmm. so they would send us their photos and memories of people they would lost, and we would add them to a fr- to the offrender that was in a shop. Well, it was in the um, is in a large window of Clay Centre for Live Art Yorkshire, mm-hmm. and so every time you walked past, there would be a new photograph and a new memory added by a member of the public,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and it was nice to be able to share those on Instagram and and it becoming a sort of an unofficial archive of the work. And a way of people who couldn't, who were still, were well, people that were immunocompromised and maybe couldn't travel to see the offender itself, that they could see it online and see that their contribution had been honoured. So
1: yeah. that was
2: very joyful, joyful time in our Instagram feed for us.
0: If there was a universal basic income, how would that affect your work? And would you still be doing the same thing? Would you still be doing it the same way if you were still doing the same thing like what what would a UBI change for you?
2: Uh, UBI would be the dream the dream the we spend a lot of time applying for funding mm-hmm. and if we had UBI we would spend less time applying for funding and more time working with communities so I could spend less time wrangling excel spreadsheets and more time talking to kids about people they've lost, you know? (laughs) Mm. And I would like it that way. Mm. So it would completely be a game changer. And it would also mean that we, a lot of the collaborators are marginal in some way. Mm. So we're a group of people that have lived experience of trauma. Mm. We're making work in unusual spaces, not in the big Mm. Barclay theatres and galleries. Mm. Uh, We're disabled, we're queer, we're women, Mm. you know, and, and actually UBI would take a massive load of pressure off people that are already fighting lots of structural societal barriers. And so it would be, it would be great in terms of leveling the playing field a little bit, Mm. and, and it would also mean that I could reclaim a sense of intuitive making. So when I was an emerging artist, I would sort of do something and not quite know why I was doing it. I'd be sort of, I guess what from the outside would look like messing around with an idea. Yeah. And and now that I'm more established because of the funding structures, you have to know four months before your first day on a project, how many seven to nine-year-olds in Gipton are going to take part in your project. Yeah. Uh, And how many days work it's going to be for everybody involved. Yeah. And... Or whilst it's important that we make a compelling case and that we're not wasting funds, it does rob it of a uh, the ability to be surprising and organic.
1: Mm.
2: And so a U- UBI would change our process and actually, I think, make it way more responsive. Because mm. if, if a community had a crazy idea halfway through the project, mm. we could go, yeah, okay, let's go with it. Mm. Rather yeah. than... I'm sorry, we that's not what we said we're going to deliver. Yeah. I mean, we're pretty good at talking to funders who have a good relationship with our funders, but they're pretty up, they trust us. Mm. But UBI would make a massive difference.
0: Do you get any corporate work? Any sort of, or, I, I mean, or, or organisational stuff? I mean, do organisations sort of, I don't we're, know, I could imagine maybe if, you, if there'd been something terrible at a workplace, maybe that. And it's like, we need, we need this, but I'm just wondering if you do get any, uh, like maybe CSR money or corporate, you know, like any sponsorship or.
2: Yeah. We haven't really done much corporate work. It's not because there's not potential there, I suppose. Um, because we're so value driven, mm. that would narrow the amount of corporate work we'd be able to do because we'd need to find corporate partners that, um, we felt were radically inclusive,
1: mm.
2: that, uh, that shared our values. and mm. um, so yeah, the, but yeah, we're, we're, at the moment we're, we're trying to get off that project funding treadmill, mm. um, but I felt like we were nearly there pre-pandemic and then the pandemic has upset that a little bit, but then I'd definitely be, you know, interested in doing corporate work provided the right partners appeared.
1: Mm,
0: Yeah, I mean, it'd definitely be an interesting avenue for you and sort of how you would adapt work or create new work or, yeah, I think it'd be an interesting area. Yeah.
2: Uh, I mean, I I guess there's a question about where do universities sit now that they're charging such high fees? Are they a corporate partner?
1: mm, Yeah.
0: I mean, bringing it back to specifically with you uh, and with your, you know, with your line of work and with the projects... So I mean how do you think a UBI would affect grief? I mean obviously that's going to give people the ability to you know leave a job without worry to take time off um like how yeah
2: yeah i mean the compassionate leave policies of workplaces are really hit and miss mm. they are really patchy and that's if and they
0: even have it
2: yeah i mean the horror stories that i have been donated over the years of mm workplace malpractice in terms of saying I'm so sorry that you lost your child but surely that means you don't need your paternity leave now you know really awful things and so UBI would allow for people to draw their own boundaries and take their own time Mm. which I think could be really valuable without fear and actually I think you know compassion is a really urgent public health issue. Tra- like trauma is is a significant and uh, public health issue. Most addiction comes from trauma. You know, a lot of antisocial behaviour stems from trauma, mm. and so a UBI would make us more compassionate and make us more able to survive and process our trauma, and process our feelings, and you might see all sorts of amazing transformations happen within society. Like I don't want to be too utopian, but you know, imagine if people had everyone that um needed counseling had the money for it mm. but at the moment, if you've got a choice between them, the cost choice between an hour of therapy and a bottle of vodka is uh, not really comparable, right? So
0: and to be fair, that vodka sounds more fun <laughs> in, the term, that, yeah.
2: in the short term, yeah, short term you just you just do the crying later, yeah, that's, that's what it is. It's delayed it's delayed yeah, yeah
0: well you can't avoid you can't avoid the you know it's worth doing the work because you can't run away from your feelings they will get you you know you do oh,
1: yeah
0: <laughs> setting yourself for a fall if you don't sort of sit down and listen to yourself yeah. and deal with how you feel um yeah. There's something else I wanted to go into there. Go on, sorry, if you're going
2: to... No, I was just going to say there's a really wonderful book that uh, is very trendy at the moment called The Body Keeps the Score, which is all about how trauma lives in our bodies. And um, I think UBI would allow us to be more present in our bodies.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think what you said there, um, I can't remember what what your terminology was, but I, like I was thinking of it in terms of... Um, like just oh, you, when you were talking about trauma and I was thinking just pain you know like just uh you know the connection between trauma and addiction and different forms of addiction but a lot of it is just pain and it's uh it's pain relief you know it's that I don't want to be in pain and grief is is the same you know like with the stages a lot of it is pain avoidance it's like well I'll be angry and then I don't I'm not in pain if I'm angry I'm not in pain if I'm in denial I mean we haven't gone through your sort of the seven stages that we're using so we should probably get that in here so it's on on the recording so uh, yeah so if you want to sort of take us well just list off the seven from the seven stages
2: okay so uh, (laughs) let's see if I can remember them off the top of my head this will be fun (laughs) challenge
0: (laughs) I'll count them
2: (laughs) so uh Denial. No, it's it, there's one that's like shock and denial. That's the first one, right? I think yeah. so. When you you just can't make contact with it, um, and yeah. then there is like oh, what's it called? It's something like depression, loneliness, and hopelessness. It's oh, okay. Really snappy, yeah. <laughs> titles. There's anger. Okay. Anger and bargaining.
0: yeah. Um, Anger and bargaining together, not separate? I think so. Okay.
2: Oh, geez, you've right put me on the spot. Uh, if you'd asked me, like it? I would. 2013, I'd, I'd be able to reel them off. <laughs> no, I'll have to get back to you. There's definitely acceptance and hope in there. There's the upward turn, which is just before acceptance and hope. So we've got seven and six.
1: Uh-huh.
2: I think we're just missing five, right?
0: Sounds about right. I've stopped counting, <laughs>
2: but it's a palette. It's not a linear process. It's not. A st- it's not stages. It's a yes. palette of things you should have permission to feel.
0: Well, even with the stages, it was like, well, you could be in any one of these at any time, and even like, you know, you can be any any couple of them. It, you can veer within the, and oh, yeah. between none of them. So,
2: yeah, sometimes within an hour. So, mm.
1: yeah. Mm.
2: <laughs> but that is really great homework. I should probably before the end of the grief series, or just do some revision on
1: that.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it shows you haven't had to think about that part of it for a bit because, you know, otherwise you'd just be, you know, be straight off the top of your head. I should probably, what I'll do is I'll put it in, um, I'll put it in the intro. So we'll cut this bit out and then I'll put the intro
2: in. Uh, Great. But also, if you want to keep it in me not remembering, I I'm not worried about that. Yeah, Fa- well, failure is fine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you could change any three things about your work, um, so, you know, regardless of budget, you can go as off the wall as you want, or you could be like, I'm perfectly happy, I wouldn't change anything. So any three things about your work, uh, what would you change?
2: Um we would be in receipt of core funding, And mm-hmm. uh, so we wouldn't be living on the project-to-project treadmill, mm-hmm. which would allow us to work slower and to do more research. Because mm-hmm. generally, I think the more research we do at the beginning of the pro- project, the better the output for participants.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but when that research gets squeezed, and um, the project then becomes not as securely grounded, like the foundation
1: mm-hmm.
2: isn't as strong. I would... Well, I suppose that's, that's the biggest one and that would, that would have all sorts of ramifications, which I guess is similar to the UBI question,
1: mm.
2: um, because that would allow us more time to archive. And I think it's really important that with live performance, which is ephemeral and disappears,
1: mm.
2: not like a visual art where you have a painting afterwards or you have prints. And mm. um, when it's conversation based, archiving is really important because Otherwise, the archives are just going to be full of straight, white, rich guys. And we need all sorts of different people and all sorts of different lived experiences in our archives. And I suppose it's um, where I'm getting to, I'm nearing completion of the grief series and I'm thinking about what the legacy is. Um, So uh, time to, I guess the second change would be time to adequately and respectfully Honor all of the participants by archiving the project in the most beautiful, thorough, rigorous way possible. And that would be something that I would change rather than having to squeeze it in amidst funding bids and meetings. And and the third thing I would change is uh,
1: the homogeny of funding boards.
0: (laughs) Yes. I would want a more diverse... I wonder if that has any connection at all to the type of things that get funded.
2: I wonder. I wonder. Mm. I wonder if it might. Um, Yeah, so I would would hope for more diverse um, leadership teams in arts organisations.
0: I mean, so sort of going back to kind of funding and UBI um I mean do you think what I want to what I want to sort of go into there is you know like arts funding there's a level of with arts funding they want to be uh some of it's kind of like we want to be community oriented or we want to be spotlighting this or we want to be doing that and then there's loads of it that's just like you know, opera for wit- for rich people and cheaper tickets and like nice theatres for them, um, and like so. And from the UBI side, I mean, you know, the kind of should art paying for itself? Like, if it's inherently valuable, then should it always be losing money? Like, um, I'd just like to get your thoughts on that kind of area of because you've kind of opened the door with the the funding board, so. Uh, I mean, would would the ideal be that you just had the money to put the art on, and you you do the art, and then the people that engage with it engage with it? Because I mean, I suppose there's something to the the marketing, getting people to hear about it and getting them in, and trying to make something that they do engage with. You know, like that they're willing to spend money on because they're like, I really like that. I. Uh, well,
2: actually 95% of the work that the Grief series delivers is free at the point of access because mm. I'm not interested in making work just for rich people. Mm. Um, I want to make work that my friends and my family might see, be able mm. to see or access. Mm. Um, so for me, it's, it's, that's where things like Patreon become interesting because that way people that can afford to pay mm. can and support mm. the work but it's not that a ticket price doesn't become a barrier or it doesn't become a tool to keep someone in the room when they don't want to be in the room.
1: Because
2: mm. once you spent your, I don't know, I'm thinking about how much a West End ticket might cost. Once you spend spent your £100, yeah. you, you're less likely to leave, even if the work mm. offends you or hurts you or, you're, or is laughing at you. Yeah, you, you want
0: to get your money's worth. I well yeah. paid for this.
2: <laughs> I've paid for this. I've paid for this. Okay, they're making jokes at my expense, but I've hmm. paid for it, so I'm going to sit here and take it.
1: Hmm.
2: You know? And and I've been that member of the audience. I've, I've been in things that I'm like, "Oh, I'm stuck here now." <laughs> <laughs> Shit. <laughs> um whereas in an ideal world it would be free. Hmm. And and then people that can pay, you know, in that way the people that are spending, I feel like the most, the majority of people that are spending eighty pounds on an opera ticket could probably afford to spend one hundred and twenty pounds on an opera ticket. You know,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah.
2: But I don't know. I don't. I, I certainly don't want to start bashing opera and high art no, ballet. It's good stuff. There's there's enough space for all of us.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah I just think money is money can be used as a bit of a weapon sometimes
0: mm. yeah who gets it who who has access to it Who's, and who well, and who says, it
2: and who says what what good looks like mm. you know
0: mm.
2: who says what good looks like
0: i mean it isn't even if it's managed by ticket ticket sales i mean your ticket sales are dependent on you know having the marketing and having you know getting the word out getting people knowing what it is and wanting to see it and you know having that buzz and so I mean that's an expense in itself getting that I mean you know or even from word of mouth then that's you know it has to be good enough and you have to have the right people there that they are going to talk about it and talk to the right people about
2: it yeah it's actually about relationship building isn't it and I think sometimes larger organizations have ideas from the top Mm. that are like oh Guess what? We're going to do this project on this community, at this community. (laughs) And the community like, no, you're all right. (laughs) (laughs) We made this thing for you. (laughs) Yeah. We made this thing at you. Um, It's okay, actually. Or like, even if I wanted to go, I can't afford the bus to get there. Or even if I wanted to, I've not got the childcare to make that viable. Yeah. Um, So... I don't know. I think we need to. There's a model um, that I don't know an awful lot about called ABCD asset-based community development,
1: okay.
2: where the community decide what they want.
1: Mm.
2: Like the community should be commissioning artists, mm.
1: yeah,
2: not artistic directors necessarily.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's a whole area, isn't it? So, uh, it's a whole
2: other conversation.
0: Yeah, well, so, I, I mean, I'm pretty much done with my questions. So, I, I, you know, I didn't say this in my spiel. No, Normally, I'll, I, I turn it over to you to kind of, if you want to add anything, if there's anything that we haven't discussed that you'd like to talk about or anything that you want to promote, if you want to do, you know, like give us your socials at this point and just, yeah, so this is your time to do with what you would like. So, yeah, up, over to you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so... I suppose um, we have a web project. I've never made a web project before mm-hmm.
1: um,
2: from Journey with Absent Friends called Explore the Journey. Mm-hmm. So there is some free art that you can go and wander around. It's a beautifully illustrated map and it has videos and writing and photographs. And You can dip in and out. You can spend two minutes or two days. I recently got a message from someone saying, I've just spent two days. I didn't mean to do that. I just went to the website and then... <laughs> got really into it and but you you can find that and then also more information about our work at griefseries.co.uk and we're grief series on instagram and facebook and 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 on twitter and then i also am ellie meg on twitter so you can find me there too Um, and patreon and patreon yes good remember thanks simon we'd set up a Patreon. So if you have money to spare and think it'd be nice to uh, help keep all of our activities free, then you can sign up to that mm. and get one of our lovely emotional baggage bags. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, we're nothing without our beautifully designed grief merch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and actually, I'm just going to ask you one really quick question. Yeah, sure. Which is, uh, what art are you consuming? What is your cultural diet look like at the moment? Are you eating lots of uh, junk art, like, which is great, mm. trash? Mm. Or are you consuming nourishing, worthy art? What are you uh,
0: Well, I've just started playing a game called Citizen Sleeper, which is a role-playing game on the PC. Um, so, you know, robot in space. Wandering around trying to, um, like, you know, make friends and influence people and discover secrets and get off to a new world and try not to get killed and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I spend far too much time on YouTube. I don't watch, like, I don't watch film nearly enough as I should, like, because film's supposedly my thing and I don't sit down and watch them enough. Anymore, Although I did watch Dirty Rotten Scandals again yesterday, which was good fun. And yeah, a fair bit of podcasts. Yeah, so not not the best diet. Varied, varied junk. <laughs> no,
2: that That is not a beige cultural diet, Simon. That's varied. You've got at least two of your five a day in there, I reckon.
0: Mm, I should be reading more. I've got some cracking books. I've just got uh, David Graver's new book, his final book with uh, David Wayne Grove. Um,
2: Amazing
0: and uh, what's that called the ed- hang on i have to get it now <laughs> dawn of everything
1: oh so yeah, i'm doing
0: dawn, of- dawn of everything that's going to be amazing i'm really looking forward to that um and then i've got another one uh which is the club on the edge of town on lane about holbeck uh i believe and there's a great quote on the back. I love this. There are children in Holbeck without crayons, living in the city with an opera company, an opera company paid for with money from all of us. Until everyone has crayons, no one gets opera. That's what I believe. Like, yeah, good. Uh, and it's got a quote from Lem Cissé on the front. So if it's good enough for Lem, it's good enough for me.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I, I read that a couple of weeks ago. Is it good? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's bold as well. Yeah. It's balls. Doesn't doesn't take any prisoners.
0: Cool. Yeah. Mm, nice. So looking forward to reading them. Yeah. Uh, but I do have to read more. I, I've been terrible. I need to consume some proper culture again. And I haven't been to the theatre for a while. I have been since lockdown, but uh, yeah, I went to see Hedwig and the Angry
2: Inch. Yeah.
0: Uh, which was really good. Did you see that at the playhouse?
2: Yeah, with Davina.
0: Yeah, it was really good.
2: Jamie, who's the director, is one of my collaborators in oh, right. Chosen Family, actually,
1: right. which is wonderful. And yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Anything else that you want to add? Any other questions before I wrap it up?
2: Um, I don't think so. Just uh, thanks for inviting me to chat to you.
0: Thanks for taking the time and thanks for uh, having the patience for me messing up. And <laughs>
2: It's okay it gave me the perfect opportunity to watch a, a horror film all about grief. It's great. <laughs> yeah,
0: Yeah, you were watching men weren't you? So it yeah. was uh yeah, what's your uh, sort of summary, well, quick capsule review.
2: It's Mar- it's marmite.
0: Right. Okay. You're going to
2: love it or you're going to hate it. Mm-hmm. I have a, I'm a massive fan of uh looking at the interior design within films. Mm. Uh, So there was a lot of really, really good interior design in the film Mm. to the point where there was one very dramatic moment and I was more worried that in in one of our characters running away that the table would be damaged. But Mm. I think it was okay. I think it survived.
0: (laughs) Thank you again to Ellie for being my guest. Thanks again to all my guests. And thanks to you, Leeds, for being my subject. And, of course, most of all, thank you to you, my dear listener. Come back next week to hear the episode I was going to put out this week. Okay, that's me. Cheers ears. Take care out there and be kind to each other, Leeds. If you're listening to this, I assume you have some connection to Leeds, like living here or being from here. If you're such a person in Leeds or from Leeds and you haven't done your recording for working hours yet, then don't wait. Email me right now. Right now. Quick get a pen working hours pod at western studios.com. Let's arrange some time for us to record your working hours interview. If you fancy being my guest, put guest in the subject of your email and add a short bio and some suggestions of your availability. If you want to be on working hours, we will need a two hour window in which to record. I can record in your work time or during your downtime. I have been recording interviews over Zoom for over a year, but I can record offline too you can appear on working hours anonymously or you can promote yourself and or your company or your brand cleaner or owner what is your experience how do you feel about work what do you like and not like what do you do leads be a part of local history have your voice heard share your wisdom give us the inside give us the inside skinny this is your show leads it's all about what you make of yourself do you know what you're doing if you do then come and tell me about it Come on, even if you don't. Email me right now. Get that pen, working hours Pod at western-studios.com. If you're allowed to, that is. If you're not allowed to, then tell me why not. If you and your business aren't ashamed of what you do, then let's hear about it. What good are you doing the rest of us? Are you socially useful? Am I? Is this? Email me right now. Get that pen, working hours Pod at western-studios.com send me feedback questions comments and queries about working hours what is happening leads follow this show on twitter at working hours three and on instagram at working hours pod to find out when episodes are being released or use the hashtag working hours pod to find me on either um, i'm also on facebook but i hate it there um, i'm also on linkedin linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash simon hyphen treen or you can go to my company page which is uh, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash western hyphen studios if you want to make a podcast in leeds whether it's for a cause a publicity campaign a product promotion and or your passion projects then get in touch with western studios for support advice and guidance on anything podcasts at Western Studios, you can work with a real loiner who is actually a Leeds that you can actually work with on making podcast content. So don't wade through articles and videos and podcasts about how to make podcasts. Western Studios can just make your podcast with you or even for you. Western Studios can take on your podcast admin, recording, editing, transcription, whatever. Tell me about it i really want to hear from other failed screenwriters such as myself to look at making your material as audio content so if you have an old script hanging around and again you are leeds based then get in touch i'd love to hear from you uh ditto to performers and actors who might be interested in doing voice work got an inkling that you'd like a podcast but you don't know where to start then hit me up at podcast at western-studios.com and we'll start making your podcast the first hour of consultation and pre-production will be free for you so get in touch and let's have a chat save the hassle save the headache and make your podcast with the leads based in real life podcast producer me at western studios leads once again please let working hours get big and strong by joining its patreon support working hours by becoming a champion on patreon for a pound a month you can also chat to me about the show and god do i need to find someone to talk to about this go to patreon.com forward slash working hours pod right now and sign up please please remember to like share follow and subscribe to this show every little bit helps tell your gran tell your housekeeper tell your gardener tell your parole officer tell your boss tell leads and i'll see thee next time Working Hours is presented, edited and recorded by Simon Treen for Western Studios Leeds Limited. The music was The Bees from Chopin's Etudes, which is in the public domain and was taken from museopen.org.